Hi, I'm Dr. David Rubin. I'm chairing this year's Mastering Clinical Challenges and Emerging Therapies in Inflammatory Bowel Disease. This is the annual meeting we have in Chicago every July, and it's always a terrific meeting. This year is no exception with some wonderful visiting faculty and expert lectures to teach us on the latest updates in inflammatory bowel disease. Joining me is Professor Jean-Fred Colombel, who is the director of the IBD Center at the Icon School of Medicine, Mount Sinai in New York City. I'm really delighted that uh, Jean-Fred has joined me, and we're going to talk a little bit about some of the new things happening in IBD. So welcome, Jean-Fred. Thank you. Um, I really enjoyed your talk today. You, you started us off today with a keynote on treating to target in IBD. Can you just explain briefly how that's emerging as the yeah. way we should think about mastering IBD? Okay, this is quite uh, simple. The starting point was that we now realize that IBD are progressive diseases, meaning that the goal of treatment is not only to treat symptoms and improve quality of life, is to block the progression of disease towards complications, fistula, stenosis, and surgery, of course. And in order to do so, I always say there are three basic principles which are key for managing patients with IBD. The first one is early, early, early. You need to treat the patients uh, as early as possible because we have a lot of data showing that if you catch the patients at the beginning of his disease or her disease, we'll be able to control the disease much better. The second concept is the concept of treat to target. What does that mean? That means that you need to treat to a target that you know is associated with long-term uh, better outcomes. And in IBD, we have defined this target as a composite of clinical remission and uh, endoscopic remission. And the third uh, concept is a concept of tie control, meaning that in order to uh, keep in target, you need to monitor the patient very closely, not only based on symptoms, but based on biomarkers. So in, in clinical practice, it's quite easy. When you start with a, with a patient, first, you need to be certain that he has active disease based on objective data. Then you discuss with him about the target, and then you monitor the patient. And if you see that you are, you are not able to reach the target, then you need to optimize or to switch or to do something. If you are on target, then this is fine and you can continue. And it, I think it's quite easy and the patient actually like a lot this um, concept. I would agree with you. So let me unpack this a little bit. Hmm? Um, let's start with the treating early. Um, part of the challenge we face in Crohn's disease, is, as our colleagues know, is that patients often have had disease for a while before they come to diagnosis. So what do you think about um, how we're getting patients referred to us, or what do you mean by treating early? Because we may not be able to get them diagnosed earlier when that's happening in the community, or frankly, people are living without knowing they have the disease for a long time before they even have noticeable symptoms. I, I completely agree with you. I think this is uh, even more so in Crohn's disease than in UC, which is uh, often more brutal. And actually, there is a long preclinical phase of Crohn's disease, as we have recently uh, shown. And but you know, this is hurting me so much, like, like you, David, when we see patients with a four-year history, five-year history of Crohn's disease, who have not been treated as they should have uh, been, you know? And the first point is to shorten the time between symptoms and diagnosis. 
This is where we need education of patients and of uh, general practitioners as well. So raising awareness. And yes. we've seen some of that with some yes. of the direct-to-consumer marketing. And the red flag uh, uh, initiatives that we have done with uh, IYBD, meaning that it's a list of items which is very simple for the GP to look at. And for a patient that the GP is seeing with non-specific uh, symptoms, you can just check this list, and if there are like more three red flags, then the likelihood that this is uh, IBD is very high. We just did an analysis of a large database at the University of Chicago, and we found of a uh, hundred patients who had um, been given a diagnosis of diarrhea and iron deficiency anemia, only eight of them got evaluated properly to look for IBD or celiac disease. Nice point. Yeah. yeah. So just to get to the next level, you also mean, of course, treat effectively yes. early. Yes, treat right? uh, effectively early. And uh, of course, this is where it becomes difficult because, as, as we know, uh, David, our patients are so heterogeneous. So it's not possible to treat the patients with the same therapy. Some patients, uh, as we discussed today, will never progress. So we shouldn't treat them with top-down, we will over-treat. Some patients are this kind of, I will even call sometimes malignant Crohn's disease. You can give anything you want, they will, they will uh, be refractory and they will uh, recur and so on and so forth. The problem is that we have no definitive tool to predict the course. Corey Siegel has uh, this very nice predict tool that we are starting to use in clinical practice. Right. Very often right now, we are relying on our clinical nose, as I always say, you know, uh, we, have, we have the same items, you know, um, for instance, when the disease is extensive, when you have perianal uh, uh, disease, when there is severe endoscopic uh, lesions, these are all criteria for a top-down uh, treatment. So this is the first point. Um, adapt your strategy to the prediction. And then what you discuss at length today, but this is not yet ready, would be to pick up the right drug for the right patients. And this is all about prediction of um, drug efficacy. And unfortunately, we are just at the beginning of this. So in the second point you made, um, choosing the right target. So you, you very nicely summarized where we think targets should be. And I like how you emphasized some individuality of targets mm -hmm. depending on the patient type. But for our um, viewers and our colleagues, what should they be thinking about? What's the target for Crohn's disease in a treat-to-target strategy and for ulcerative colitis? Where I are think, we? I think the, so we have to differentiate the target and the goal. The goal is the same. The goal is block disease progression, avoid surgery and cancer and so on and so forth. And we believe that in order to do so, we need to reach the target. And in Crohn's disease, it's a combination, again, of clinical remission and endoscopic remission. The definition of endoscopic remission may actually vary according to patient. In UC, it's a combination, same, of clinical remission and endoscopic remission. But maybe we should go even further. And this is based uh, especially on your data, showing that maybe we should go even beyond to histological healing in order to get the best uh, long-term outcomes. So the, the, where the rubber meets the road or where the challenge actually occurs is you have an asymptomatic patient who's doing well, yet you have a marker of inflammation, whether you've looked with a scope or used a CRP, whatever it might yeah. be. And that's probably where um, we have a blind spot. I agree. Because when the patient's feeling well, um, their 
um, less likely to want to escalate or intensify therapy. And the physician is worried, frankly, about a potential side effect or toxicity. So how do you find the balance there? What do you teach our colleagues? So uh, I think the most important teaching point is that all the decisions to start, to optimize, and to stop, as uh, you discussed as well, should be based on objective criteria. I think this is key. So not only, again, symptoms, but biomarkers, endoscopy, and so on, and, uh, and so forth. So imagine that you have a patient doing well clinically, but you see that you monitor the biomarker, which is quite easy, CRP in blood, calprotectin in stools, like every three to six months. And you see that, and, and you have the reference uh, value from, from the beginning for this very patient. And you see that the uh, biomarkers are creeping up. This is a red flag. So I think you should repeat, exclude other reasons for high CRP, for instance, an infection. And then if it's, you can repeat, and then this should be a, a trigger for a new colonoscopy or cross-sectional imaging. So I've always described that there were three things needed in order for us to adopt this and feel more comfortable. The first one was um, understanding the data and outcomes with subclinical inflammation or allowing patients to live with inflammation. The second one was having therapies that actually can change those markers and knowing how to do that. And the third one was in the way we discussed them and having people adopt the therapies and know how to use them. And so you're the first author and, and helped to design the very nice CALM study, which looked at a specific algorithm of escalating therapy in Crohn's disease. Um, for those out there who are listening and learning from us, um, how do you escalate therapy? What is the general steps that you take to move patients along? Is it that you jump to a different class? Do you have to, or is it much more complex? So when you are not able to reach the target, then you need to basically uh, know if you will uh, try to optimize or to switch. And we are all doing the same, meaning that when this is where you, you can add new uh, tools for monitoring, such as drug uh, TDM, for instance, drug monitoring. If you have not reached a target, you measure levels uh, of the drug and antibodies. If the levels are low, you can try to optimize. If you are not able to reach a target despite good levels and no antibodies, then I think it's time, uh, it's time, it's time to switch or you can uh, use some combo therapy. We are just starting to use combination therapy with biologics, actually, which is an interesting topic as well. So this is the way I'm, I'm doing it. And, and uh, we've talked a little bit about the idea that patients are more likely and, and more comfortable optimizing than switching when they're asymptomatic. Yes, yes, but yes. many patients um, are not truly asymptomatic. They may be feeling better but they don't get to a point where it's under good control. Okay. And, and the analogy, maybe it's a poor analogy, but is if, if we monitored and, and managed diabetes only when the patient had complications, we would be missing the entire strategy of managing diabetes. And so tight control and understanding this yeah, is important. I, I, I agree with you. And, and David, I'm sure you have seen those patients who have symptoms, but they are so used to these symptoms Normalization. that they consider their life as yeah. normal. They may right. have five, six stools per day, two stools per night, but right. they're saying, okay, I'm, I'm fine. No, you are not fine. This yes. is not normal life. Well, we have to tell people to have high expectations yes. and to expect more from us and exactly. to expect more from the way we do this. 
Let's shift gears now. There's been some new therapies we talked about today. Um, there are a couple of new therapies now available. Uh, of course, in 2016, we had the advent of ustekinumab as an IL-1223 inhibitor for Crohn's disease. And just this year, we had the approval of tofacitinib as a JAK inhibitor to treat moderate to severe ulcerative colitis. How are you using these therapies in your practice? Huh. This is a difficult question because it's about positioning. So, uh, right now in Crohn's, we have basically the anti-TNF family, anti-integrin with VEDO, and ustekinumab, okay? So, how can we position? I always use a very simple uh, algorithm. I'm looking at uh, efficacy, safety, practicality, and cost. I think these are the four. That's exactly what I look at. Yes. <laughs> so when you and the problem with Except efficacy. Except it sounds better when you say it with your accent. <laughs> and I don't say practicality. I say convenience. Convenience. Sorry. No, you <laughs> don't apology necessary. So the point is that um, as far as efficacy is concerned, we have no head-to-head study. There is this uh, me- uh, meta-analysis with network meta-analysis comparing drugs, but I'm not a big fan uh, of that. So it's difficult to pick up a drug based on efficacy. Safety, we certainly have some data showing, for instance, that uh, vedolizumab and istekinumab may be safer than the anti-TNF. So this could be a reason to choose one of, of these drugs in uh, older patients, patients who had past history of infections, comorbidities, uh, and, and so on. And then practicality, because some patients would prefer, or convenience, some uh, patients will prefer IV, some patients will prefer sub-Q, and then cost. And my, my, my problem, I must say, in this country is that uh, coming from France, you know, for me, it's still difficult because very often the positioning is driven by cost. Yes. Because it's driven by insurance and so on. And very often, as you know, I don't know how it's in uh, Chicago, but the insurance will not allow you to use, for instance, Ustekinumab first line, which, will, uh, which will make sense. It's happening all over the country. Which will make sense. So something very important now is a a new era of oral drugs. And the first that we have, of course, is tofacitinib. I think this will change the game for uh, two reasons. The first one is convenience, because it's an oral drug, and I believe a lot of patients will like that first. And the second point is flexibility, meaning that you can take the drug and stop and restart, because there is no risk of immuno immunogenicity. So there are also a lot of arguments to think that maybe we should use uh, TOFA first line, for instance, in some uh, patients, even though it works uh, also very well in anti-TNF refractory patients. So all this uh, game of positioning is, it's very tough because very often you will not be uh, allowed or able to do what uh, is, what you want. And in uh, the absence of head-to-head study, the payers will always say we have, we have no criteria to yes. choose. Well, they selectively choose to use data when it exists, and when there isn't data, they selectively choose to tell yeah, us that there are no data, and then they make recommendations that we ultimately know are related to cost. Yes. And it's direct cost to the payer. It's not about cost savings downstream or no, cost no, effectiveness. No. Uh, and so that's part of the challenges we face here, and it's a big problem. Uh, it's also one of the reasons why one of the topics today was on de-escalation and um, where we might be with that and how we might move forward. Uh, and part of that 
approach uh, to thinking about patients in that regard, and I know you've thought a lot about this and written about it, had to do with monitoring patients. So in a stable patient with Crohn's or UC who's doing well, I'm not necessarily asking you when you de-escalate, but how do you monitor that stable patient? Because the implication of treating to a target is that you want to make sure that they stay on target. Yeah. And it's not correct to believe that just because they're on a stable therapy taking their medicine, which is already yeah. something we have to assume, that they're going to stay on target. So yeah. how do you monitor? So the... Um I think this is a key point. And as you mentioned this morning, this is one of the most frequently asked questions by patients. And as you alluded to as well, there are basically two uh, possibilities, either to stop or to de-escalate. So my problem with stopping is that the experience that we have so far, even though there are very few prospective studies, there are no control studies. Uh, we are doing the first one with uh, our European colleagues. The problem is that most of patients who stop will relapse. For instance, with uh, azathioprine, we did a study long time ago in patients who are doing very well after four years. They stopped three years after 50% of patients relapsed. In the STORY trial, after seven years, 70% of patients had to restart uh, something. So I'm not very convinced about stopping. Stopping basically will mean cure because no disease and no treatment. Maybe in a subgroup of patients who have been started on a very strong drug early, maybe it's possible to stop. But look at uh, our friends, rheumatologists, mm -hmm. who are always um, ahead, um, of us. ahead of us. And they, they are very skeptical now about, about stopping. Mm -hmm. Because what they have seen is that the disease is, uh, is creeping up. Right. But as you mentioned th this morning, and actually you did the first uh, study with the five, uh, with five other, de-escalation could be also nice, uh, a nice way to go. Yeah, and I think that's um, something we need to study more, and it's happening whether we want it to or not, so and, that's important. And to uh, finish about your question, if you de-escalate, you need to monitor, meaning that you need to monitor based on biomarkers, and also more and more, I think you need to monitor based on drug levels. For instance, if you are on combo therapy, um, an anti-TNF with uh, azathioprine, if you want to decrease azathioprine, there are very nice uh, data from uh, Xavier Roblin from France showing that you can reduce the dose of azathioprine to a level of 100 um, as far as uh, of uh, 60 GN, mm -hmm. and this is enough to keep the benefit of, uh, of combo. Similar with data from Maria Abreu Yes, exactly. Miami. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so let's just switch gears now to biosimilars. Um, in Chicago, we're seeing uh, our infusion suites and even our own medical center favoring the use of biosimilar infliximab uh, because it's less expensive, at least up front. Um, what are you seeing in New York, and what are your thoughts about this? <laughs> so I will tell you something. I've never used a biosimilar in New York. So don't ask me why. <laughs> This is a mystery. I am me. asking you why. I think it's a. Uh, it has you something been to do. You have been forced to use it. Yeah, it That's has. Yes. Difference. Yeah, this is. Uh, and this but you so know the data because it so started different. in Europe and yeah, Asia. Yeah, yeah, Because when I, already when I was in France, I, had, I have still a, a very strong link with my colleagues. Basically, it's a no-brainer. In France, we have to start with a, a biosimilar. And the point is that I completely uh, am very confident with the biosimilars, the extrapolation data, I'm missing this is gone, then this is admitted. I am 
uh, also very confident with one switch. I'm still a little bit uh, skeptical about multiple, uh, multiple switches. The problem that I see in you, as David, and I don't know what you think about that. You were showing this uh, uh, morning, or there was a, a talk showing that there are, I don't know how many biosimilars in development. And what I see in U.S. is that very often the patients don't know on what drugs they have been. That's so right. imagine that you, are, you switch from um, a regular drug from one biosimilar, and then the patient moves to another state. He will be switched maybe to another one, well, and very often he, he wouldn't not know. Not just the patient. So I've actually, when I've given lectures on biosimilars, I've emphasized that if a patient developed anti-drug antibodies against the originator, and then you want to cycle them to another drug in class or switch mechanisms, but then you call the insurance company and they tell you, no, no, we have a special this month <laughs> on the biosimilar to the originator, that what people will miss, and this is a new concern, is that the antibodies against the originator are going to cross-react with the biosimilar, Absolutely. and that could be life-threatening. Exactly. And people don't know this, and that's why it's exactly. absolutely essential that there be communication. It could be life-threatening, uh, especially now, because they are also pushing this home, home infusion. infusions. We're not Imagine that, that you will yeah. have... Oh, this is big yeah. in uh, New I York know. now. Well, so this is a challenge we face. So yeah. we have to keep um, driving home the, the evidence and educating our colleagues, which is maybe a good place for us to wrap up. Yeah. I want to thank you for visiting no, beautiful Chicago, yeah. and <laughs> I want to thank all of you for uh, logging on to learn a little bit about what mastering um, the clinical challenges in IBD and learning about emerging therapies has been. We'll look forward to our next conference a year from now, July 2019, here in Chicago. Thank you very much.